friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz. And as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, they're fucking banning mouse in Tennessee? Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, all of y'all, this is probably old news from the point that we're recording this. This has been going on for, I don't know. A couple know. weeks. Yeah, and like, Mouse is now at the top of the bestsellers list because of fucking course it is. For those of you in the dark, Mouse is a incredibly important graphic novel that accounts uh, basically the horrors of the holocaust Mm -hmm. particularly for the jewish community depicted with cats and mice supplanting nazis and jewish prisoners Mm -hmm. um i recall when it came out in like sixth grade or something it it came out to massive critical acclaim it won like very prestigious awards. It is something that people point to when they quantify the ability for comics to be art. Yeah. And a Tennessee school system, school district, is trying to put it on a banned book list. Well, okay. So um, I didn't even realize Mouse was like that young. I thought it was much older than that for some reason. But um, Art Spiegelman's Mouse, Mm -hmm. uh, it is, yes, it's a recounting of the Holocaust. It's also kind of a memoir about his father because Art Spiegelman is in the book and his father is, it's his father's story. It's a recounting of all of his father's tales of being in the Holocaust. And it's kind of back and forth, this like really tragic holocaust story but also a tale of like what that does to a human even after they've escaped it it's a brilliant brilliant book and and yeah you're right it's one of the when people talk about comics and graphic novels as art as like there's a big deal made that watchmen is i think the only novel that appears on time's 100 greatest novels list I would argue Mouse definitely deserves to be up there, possibly even more than Watchmen, and I love Watchmen. Yeah, I would make that argument, because this is telling a much more important story, I would argue. Yeah, and it's 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 brilliant, and if you read the actual discourse that's going on around this, like, coming out from the school district, I, I've looked into it a little bit. I, I won't pretend that I've, like, deep-dived it. But the uh, the ostensible premise is that it has violence and it has language, which includes words like goddamn, hell, and bitch. Yeah. Shakespeare has those words and that much violence. Like, I'm remembering an old Alice Cooper interview where he was talking about his show being banned. And those of you who don't know, Alice Cooper is an old rock star and he was very famous for having this very horror movie-esque stage show but he was like why he was sitting here going like why am i banned in england and they were like well and he's sitting here going like there's no like bad language in my show there's no sex in my show there's no nudity and they're like well there's lots of blood and he's sitting here going there's blood in macbeth and that is required reading in schools 
they're like bitch and goddamn and hell are in fucking like Mark Twain. They're in the Bible. Yeah, and I mean so this this obviously creates a pretty A to B uh, at first seeming logical conclusion where I would say, I don't think the uh, school board of McKinn County, I've, I've pulled it up for the okay. details here. I don't think the school board of McKinn County is reading uh, Huckleberry Finn either for a very specific reason. Oh, sure. Um, you know, when this came out, it, it when this the news of this came out on Twitter, it, it faced a, a ton of backlash. And I think the most, telling an effective thing is a tweet from our beloved Neil Gaiman yeah. um, saying there's only one kind of person who would vote to ban mouse, whatever they are calling themselves these days. He's talking about Nazis. And, and yeah, like the, the only thing that could have made this more horrifying is if it was in the same part of Virginia that the Tiki torch rally took place in. Yeah. Like this is pretty blatant, clear um, attempt at, puritanical draconian control over something for a very paper thin reason so that you can effectively silence the very important story that just so happens to not line up with your own political worldviews. I mean, this is a, this is a way to build Nazis of tomorrow by not showing them through this accessible medium what Nazis do. So here's an interesting thing to me. To me, it's interesting. Um, you know, the Holocaust was taught in my public school. You know, we watched Schindler's List when the teacher was hungover. Like, it was a thing. We read Number the Stars, which is a Lois Lowry novel for young adults that's supposed to be like, a low-key introduction to the Holocaust, and it's a very bad book. I'm going to be upfront. It's a bad book, but, you know, it's about an important topic. I remember reading Daniel's story. That was another one. Like, we, we, we were taught this shit. And I even remember at the time that I was coming up and I was being educated in the, like, 90s and the early 2000s, we were at the point where we were like, yeah, we get it. The Holocaust was bad. We take it as red. You don't need to keep driving it into us. Like, it almost felt like a, at the time, like, you're trying too hard. We get it, guys. Like, you don't have to keep hammering this home. I say this not, not like, defending it. I'm saying it that that, that was the attitude that we kind of had. We, and, and I have talked about this on the show, I was a shitty edgelord kid who liked to make my Holocaust jokes, who, and I don't defend that person who I was. Like, mm -hmm. I, I grew up on all of that kind of shitty form of comedy, and I've come back around on the other side of it. I hope that we are all so lucky as to disavow the older versions of ourselves. But I'm kind of sitting here going like, okay, is the idea not teaching this in the first place? Like, I read these stories about, you know, 
the this whitewashing of history where it's suggesting that like slavery wasn't nearly as bad as it was or downplaying what a debacle the Vietnam War was and is it just like we have to be so raw raw America that like and and that, that that we have to pretend that we've never done anything shitty like the news media pretends we don't do anything shitty already and i mean the only thing i can sit here and say is yes yes absolutely like it, it's been no surprise that like american public education textbooks have been increasingly jingoistic as the decades have gone on, I think about my high school history honors course where sure, we read about the Holocaust, but we also watched the D-Day scene from Saving Private Ryan twice and focused on that because holy shit, this is cool and did not watch Schindler's List. Mm. I remember reading the diary of Anne Frank in middle school and like, it never coming up in an academic sense since then. And like not to not to get like super conspiracy theory off the bat, but like I think Gaiman is right in that there is really only one clear-cut thing, and that is somebody who is like the head of the board of the McKinn County school system is a closet Nazi. And has a, a back room full of paraphernalia that he can't show mixed company. Mm. And decided that this thing offended him because it is going to poison the minds of our children that the globalists... Globalists means Jews. Yes, that the globalists are... I, I don't even know, like insidiously making you feel sympathetic so that the 1% shadow government can continue to brainwash you and, and give all your money to the Jews. I think about how if you just go on YouTube and just watch like whatever is the top video in YouTube and let that play video after video after video and let YouTube pick the next video, Statistics of studies have shown within a couple hours you're on Joe Rogan and within a couple more hours you're on Jordan Peterson. Mm. And if you just let YouTube play long enough, inevitably it turns into Nazi content. Yeah. Pro-Nazi content. Yeah. That's... <laughs> this is going to make no sense to some of you listening, but, like, that's the reason why... I, I, I'll sit on YouTube and YouTube likes to recommend atheist content to me because I've, you know, played a few too many Christopher Hitchens speeches, <laughs> which, you know what, fair, that's my fault. Um, but it likes to recommend atheist content to me. And I'm always sitting here like, okay, if I sit on atheist YouTube for long enough, it will absolutely take me into like all realms of libertarian YouTube into like conspiracy theory YouTube into and eventually you get into white supremacy YouTube yeah. it just becomes a thing there and it's not that there's anything inherently white supremacist about atheism as a concept but if you don't 
examine things within the context of understanding the cultures that arise around these things, you are not paying close enough attention to how technology algorithms work. Yeah. The whole point is to piss us off, because if you piss us off, we engage. The mouse thing pissed us off. And again, mouse is at the top of the bestseller list right now, years after it came out. Yes, and, and just a small correction, you are right. It came out in 1991. I just okay. heard about it in sixth grade. Okay. Mouse came out the same year as Red Hot Chili Peppers Blood Sugar Sex Magic. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and so, you know, my final word on it will be, like, it really is puritanical is, is the word that comes to mind. It's the most generous non-Nazi conspiracy reading I can take is that these people truly believe, no, this is inappropriate for our, our tender young children's eyes and will raise questions that we are uncomfortable answering and, and will scar them because, no, and, and, and you're right, Mr. Alex Ruiz, we, we won't teach Shakespeare and, and we won't, like, teach anything that that has a, a naked breast in it or says the word God damn. We'll just teach the Bible like we should have been doing the whole time. And all I can think of is the dude in Footloose who's like, that English teacher at the high school is trying to teach that terrible book. What's it called again? Oh, Slaughterhouse-Five. What a terrible title. Oh yeah, that's a great book. It's a classic. A Tom Sawyer is a classic. Fuck you. Meanwhile, there is no nine-year-old in the country who doesn't have a cell phone and is on TikTok and can find more debaucherous shit if they want to with less artistic and educational merit. So this is stupid. These people should feel bad, and I'm really glad it backfired. And every one of you should read Mouse. Absolutely. With that tacit uh, endorsement, welcome to Love-Hate Relationship. Uh, as I said at the top, an opinionated podcast. We start every episode off discussing our opinions about whatever filters through our heads for your entertainment. Yeah, you were going to talk about the Olympics. <laughs> I was going to talk about the Beijing Olympics and how they've been going on for a week and I could not give a single fuck. Yeah, but instead we're going to talk about this shit. <laughs> and you know what? I'm, I'm glad we did. Uh, we are also going to talk about the things we talk about every episode in that... Our normal content is one of us talks about something we love, the other talks about something we hate, and then we take yours and the internet's relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice. And Alex, speaking of anthropomorphized uh, animals, you have the love. Jesus Christ, Andy. Okay, so uh, some time ago, uh, I think it was while you were staying with us, I subjected you to watching uh, uh, the watching of a movie that I dearly adore that got incredibly mixed reviews, and that unless you are speaking to a very specific bracket of millennials born sometime in the late 80s, like, basically, my sister was born in, like, 84, I was born in 89. If you weren't born in basically that bracket, you don't give a shit about this movie. Um, Andy, having seen that film, please give me your thoughts on 2001's Josie and the Pussycats. Sure. So, yes, this is something we we watched at your behest a while ago. Um, and, and it was actually the second time I had seen Josie and the Pussycats. Oh, okay. I have a soft spot in it in the fact that, like, I first watched it 
shortly after it came out. And I think my dad grabbed it from Blockbuster, most likely because he thinks Tara Reid was hot, mm. um, and, and put it on. And for a, a not-quite-yet-teenager, I found it to be this wonderful, like, punk rock, funny, like, just good time of a film... So I have a very small, a very soft spot for it. That said, upon rewatching, I, I cannot help but say that it, it comes across pretty dated and not as funny as I remembered it being mm. to my uh, twelve years later adult sensibilities. Okay, we're gonna fight. I know. I appreciate that. Um, I remember you having a bit of a lukewarm reception to it when we watched it, whereas it is a movie that I dearly, dearly love. And, like, I want to be clear, probably the biggest reason that I was inspired about this was because I listened to the soundtrack and I tend to post in my Instagram stories whatever I'm listening to, whenever I'm listening to dope music. And I have never gotten so many DMs about my Instagram stories as when I put, as when I showed that I was listening to the Josie and the Pussycats soundtrack and so many of my specifically millennial female friends DM'd me to be like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I'm very happy for you with that. So with that in mind, um, just to give a little bit of background, uh, obviously my topic is the 2001 Josie and the Pussycats movie. I think this is the second time I've talked about a movie, the first one being Footloose, which I just referenced. Yeah, this is fitting now that I think about it. Yeah, no. <laughs> so premiering in 2001 and directed and co-written by Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan, Josie and the Pussycats is a satirical musical comedy film very, 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 very loosely based on the Archie comic books and the 60s Hanna-Barbera series of the same name. It stars Rachel Lee Cook, Rosario Dawson, Tara Reid, Alan Cumming, and Parker Posey. Its soundtrack features original songs written or co-written by the directors Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend fame and Adam Duritz of Counting Crows and was produced largely by Schlesinger and Babyface. The story follows a struggling Riverdale, this was before the show Riverdale was even a twinkle in Greg Berlanti's eye. Sure. Um, story follows a struggling Riverdale pop-punk trio called the Pussycats, featuring Cook as singer-guitarist Josie, Dawson as bassist Val. That's a cool rewrite because Val in the cartoon played the fucking tambourine and there was no bassist. Um, and Reed as drummer Melanie as they are given a seemingly out of nowhere recording contract by a random record exec named Wyatt Frame played by Cumming. And eventually they discover that they're being lured into a global consumerist conspiracy to get kids and music fans to buy stuff via subliminal messaging. And before we go any further, like, okay, that is, a, that is an effective plot synopsis. I, and I, I want to state, like, yeah, this is the reason we're, we're going to fight. I think the film is fine. I think it deserves to exist. <laughs> 
It's hard not to like Alan Cumming in anything he's in. Sure. You have prime of her life, Tara Reed, before she went party girl crazy on everybody. And you have Rachel Lee Cook before she was doing Lifetime films. And you have kind of a kind of a up and coming Rosario Dawson. Mm. I very much enjoy the meta critique of the movie, the satirical aspects of the movie. It, it gets very much into like tongue in cheek, making fun of consumerism, and goes very much into like the the subliminal marketing power of musicians. And it's a very fun conversation for people who are familiar enough with the industry to care about such a thing. And? And it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It, it has some objectively annoying characters. The ending is very out of left field. I think maybe the funniest thing about it is they turn like they have this big reveal that Carson Daly is a shadow agent who will like assassinate somebody once they give him his orders. That is like the peak joke of the movie. <laughs> that is a joke in the movie. Um, we'll talk about the ending, actually, because I have a defense for the ending. Okay. But um, just to finish up my background, the film got mixed reviews. You're giving it mixed reviews, just sitting across from me. <laughs> Better With, than Riverdale. Probably a more accurate, like, in spirit. Oh, you're not into Jughead being a neo-Nazi? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> the film got mixed reviews with most critics agreeing that it was fun, if vapid, and that the product placements distracted. More on that later. Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic have it at a 53 and a 47 out of 100, respectively. Uh, and Roger Ebert gave it a one and a half stars, comparing it to the Spice World movie that came out four years prior, basically saying that it was not dumber than Spice World, but as dumb as Spice World. Mm. As someone who enjoyed Spice World despite the dumbness, I'm not going to agree with Roger Ebert on that one. Sure. But then again, he liked Babe more than I did, so... Because he called Babe like a perfect movie. Mm. Anyway, it grossed $14 million on a budget that was somewhere between 22 and $39 million. I'm not sure why the estimates I looked up were that big, but okay. they had that big a range in them. But either way, at its lowest figures, it was a flop. Yeah, sure. Um, but it did okay on home video and is considered something of a cult film now. Yeah, I would agree with that, absolutely. It like you said, to a certain subsect of, of millennial, this is a, like, foundational movie. Yeah, like, this was... But it's so forgettable if you weren't... If you were not a tween or teen right at that point in 2001. We're talking about, like, coming of age during 9-11. Like, yeah. if 9-11 did not a little bit ruin your childhood, then you will not remember this movie. Yeah. <laughs> So, why do I love it? To start with, I want to talk about the soundtrack. And I think you will agree the soundtrack slaps. The soundtrack is the best thing in the movie, and I am including Alan Cumming in that quantification. I am happy with that. So, I can remember that the two big singles off of it, and I'm going to ask you to play a drop of the first one here. Three Small Words 
and pretend to be nice. Both getting burned onto a mix my sister gave me when I was a kid, and I was obsessed with them. I loved these songs. The actual soundtrack itself went gold. And fun fact that I don't think you knew, Fallout Boy actually asked Babyface to produce the singles on Infinity on High specifically because they were chasing the production sounds that he got on this soundtrack. I did not know that, and I think that's amazing. I also, I, I don't know who Babyface is. I won't even say that I didn't know until this conversation. I don't know who this person is. Yo, okay, like, very short side tangent, because I almost made Babyface a love at one point. Babyface is one of the most prolific R&B producers, like, of all time. Like, I'm, I'm straight up going to just give you a couple of his listings. Okay. But Babyface, he produced a bunch of Lil Wayne. He produced Mary J. Blige. He produced Madonna, Aretha Franklin, Chaka Khan, Janet Jackson, Faith Evans, Beyonce, Deanna Ross, Diana Ross, ugh, Celine Dion, Backstreet Boys, Catherine McPhee, Mariah Carey, Bruno Mars, Kelly Clarkson, and Vogue, Zendaya. He's done Kenny G. He's done Pink. He's done Ariana Grande, TLC. Like, he's worked with everybody in the R&V vein. But he also produced, I think it was Thriller and Thanks for the Memories on Fallout Boy's Infinity on High. Okay. He produced some of their biggest songs, and they specifically asked him to do it because they were like, you produced Pretend to Be Nice? Yes, babyface. I I do love that. I, I love the mental image of Patrick Stump, like, leaning over a table with an excited grin on his face because of this. I'm, I'm just saying, like, separately of that, like... That soundtrack went gold. Like, it was such a huge aspect of this. Adam Schlesinger's, like, I might need... Adam Schlesinger died last year of COVID. Um, and that was extremely tragic. And it's really tragic because a lot of people don't know him. Mm. They don't know that he wrote... Uh, he co-wrote pretty much every song on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Which is a show I have not seen more than, like, a couple of episodes of, but I've seen a bunch of the songs, like, in YouTube clip format, and it's a show that had songs. He he co-wrote pretty much every song on those. Mm. He was the lead singer of Fountains of Wayne, and he just did a whole bunch of... Have you ever seen Neil Patrick Harris's Tony, Tony intro? The, it's not just for gays anymore. Yes. Adam Schlesinger wrote that. Okay. Like, Adam Schlesinger is low-key one of the great Hollywood songwriters. And most people only know him as the Stacy's mom guy. Sure. Which is tragic. But he wrote and produced several of the songs on this soundtrack. And I fucking adore that. The fact that Three Small Words was co-written with Adam Duritz from Counting Crows. And I did not know that before this conversation. Straight up. And that's what the, it's this, this sleeper soundtrack that's full of these incredibly dope music. 
And yes, I will admit, Rachel Lee Cook did not do the vocals. Like, I think the actual vocals were done by the lead singer of Letters to Cleo. Yes, Kay Hanley of Letters to Cleo was the singing voice for Josie. Admit, I'll admit to that. Rachel Lee Cook could not play guitar, could not sing. She was cast just like Rosario Dawson. Like, the part for Val was like Beyonce auditioned for that. Um, Aaliyah auditioned for that, I think. Lisa Left Eye Lopez from TLC auditioned for that. They A lot of great musical artists. They picked Rosario Dawson because they specifically wanted someone who could do comedy. Sure. They weren't, they were less worried about the music side of it because they got these dope ass people on the soundtrack. They were like, we want actors who can do comedy. Which is fair. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. So moving on from the soundtrack separately, I think this movie is infinitely smarter than people give it credit for. And I will include you on that. Okay, say more. Okay, so as a starting point. If you read the reviews of it, it got a tremendous amount of flack for including huge amounts of product placement. Like, if you actually watch the movie, almost every scene, if there is not a product being shown physically in frame, they make a reference to it. Like, and, and, and just, and pulling this from Wikipedia, but like a short list, Sega and the Dreamcast, Motorola, Starbucks, Gatorade, Snapple, Evian, Target, Aquafina, America Online, Pizza Hut, Cartoon Network, Revlon, Kodak, Puma, Advil, Bounce, and more than that. I, I'm remembering the scene where Tara reads Melanie, like, listens to their single, which has subliminals on it. And she's like, I want a Big Mac from McDonald's. And they're like, Melanie, you're a vegetarian. What's, what's wrong with you? Right. Like, yeah. it's, it's obvious product placement. They got a lot of flack for that. But... The people who were giving them flack for that seemed to completely fail to look into the fact that none of those product placements were paid for. Not one of those companies paid for that placement. The filmmakers put them in there for satirical purposes. And here's the thing, this movie came out in 2001. This was criticized. Product, the product placement in every scene was criticized in this female-led comedy movie but celebrated when fucking Fincher did it a year earlier in Fight Club with his goddamn Starbucks cups in every goddamn scene. Well, okay, two things. One, you're never gonna outwin the edgelords. You're never going to, like, they're a problem and they need to be stopped, but they are always going to have a more vocal presence on the internet than the target audience of Josie and the Pussycats. But... I will go out on the limb to defend this point in a different way. This is a very this is a very smart movie. I never said it was not smart. I argued that it was not good. <laughs> but something I, I did say that I appreciate is this movie has such a perfectly pointed mission statement about making fun of hyper consumer culture. It's it's you know massive plot element. And to a more meta extent, filling this movie to the brim with product placement, it's a bonus product placement that they, they basically did on the sly and did guerrilla style, helps that mission statement. This is a film about how 
like desperately important product placement is to the Hollywood elite that they will do all this evil shit for it. And this is a movie chock full of product placement. There's a free meta joke for the smart people in the audience paying attention. Sure. So I I I am not above defending this film. I appreciate that. I will maintain the fact that Fincher got praise for putting a Starbucks cup in every fucking frame of Fight Club, but this movie got criticized for its product placement is a sign of sexism and is a sign of shitty movie takes. I, I will not disagree at all. Okay, good. The satire is tongue-in-cheek, and it's subtle, and the ending is hilariously nihilist and very meta. And if you remember, like, spoilers for the very, very end of Josie and the Pussycats, but, like, Alan Cumming and Parker Posey's characters discover that they, like, reveal that they were both, like, complete facades where they were just very insecure people in high school who actually went to high school together and everything that they have been doing has essentially been them trying to get people to like them or respect them. And they find each other, and he's an albino, weirdly, and she's got a lisp, and it that part has not aged well. I won't pretend it has. Mm. But at the end, the federal government G-men, basically, who we saw previously in the movie con- doing the conspiracy with them because they wanted kids to buy more shit and were perfectly happy with the subliminals when... The record execs are caught. They're like, the government is here. Arrest them. And they're like, cool, we're going to arrest you. And they're like, but you were in on it with us the whole time. And they're like, yeah, we're going to throw you under the bus. All this shit works better in movies anyway. Again, good meta joke. Good meta joke. Also, like, speaks to the nihilist in me. Because it does say that at the end of all of this, the people you trust... To do the right thing, to ultimately be the arbitrators of justice, are just as invested in you buying fucking Pepsi as the people selling you the fucking Pepsi. Why, Alex, that would be like pointing out that the director of Homeland Security is a former Raytheon executive who still collects a paycheck. Yes. Yeah. I love you. (laughs) I, like, you say that the ending falls flat. you that it comes out of nowhere and it is very tongue-in-cheek i will admit the twist with the record executives is not exactly telegraphed ahead of time and it is not in the universe that is established in the like 80 minutes prior to that scene that is not out of nowhere sure that is not terribly it would have been terribly left if it were revealed up front but you have to remember that alan cummings character before he even meets josie and the pussycats tries to murder the boy band that he is managing because they discover the subliminals and they're too stupid to do anything about it but he goes well they know so i'm going to have to kill them And he jumps out of an airplane and lands outside of Riverdale and is like, well, I guess I'll find my next act here. When that is the first 15 minutes of your movie, that ending, the the out of left parts of that ending just fit with that universe. 
You know what? Fair. Yeah, absolutely. And meanwhile, we get political nihilism. We get anti-consumerism. We get an, we, we get this notion that we can stop this in the short term, but it all is happening well and above us. Maybe the one thing that can kind of help us through the darkness of this is a concert where everyone takes off their weird cat ear headphones that have been designed to brainwash them into loving this music and just listen to the music and decide if you like it for yourself. Yeah. I mean, as you recount all this, I am sitting here being like, this is kind of tailor-made for your specific days. This is very much a movie that, like, when I first watched it, I loved it because it was great music, because I enjoyed the jokes that I did get. I liked watching Carson Daly try to murder Rosario Dawson and Tara Reid. Like, that was fun for me. Sure. I'd forgotten that Seth Green plays a boy band member at the beginning of this movie. A very young Seth Green plays a very stupid boy band member. Like, it works on so many levels. But even re-watching it, I'm sitting here going, like, the writing is smart. This is all me wrapping up. The writing is smart. Especially for the time, the concept was highly original, especially when you consider that at that time, the, only, the, the comic book movie that hit the zeitgeist prior to this sure. was the first X-Men. Like, you get 2000's X-Men. In 2002, you get the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. And in between, you get a comic book adaptation of Josie and the Pussycats... That makes these weird, like, they have fucking Alexander and Alexandra from, Alexandria from the books and the, and the TV show in this. Like, Alexander is their manager. They have an Alan M who's, like, barely there. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. And it's like, it, it, that's Gabriel Mann. He's very charming in, like, all of his scenes. They have Paulo Costanzo as Alexander and Missy Pyle as alexandria and at one point like alexandria is on the plane with them and ostensibly her only connection to this group is that their manager is her brother and they're like why are you here alexandria and she's just like oh i was in the comic book like they are very in on this and it is the most like original take on a comic book movie at a time when comic book movies were basically fucking x-men and the Roger Corman Fantastic Four. I don't know where Blade falls in on this. I'm pretty sure we hadn't gotten to the Punisher movie at that point. No, not at all. I mean, we, you know, you had the Michael Keaton Batman universe and you had the Richard Donner Superman movies and you had X-Men. You did not have comic strip movies, which I would argue anything from the Archie universe kind of falls more in, despite the fact that it was a comic book, neither here nor there. No, I, I see your point, and I, I very much appreciate that point. I would not turn this off if it was on in a hotel room that I had to be in for a few hours. Sure. But I would change the channel if I knew that the two-minute-long Cartoon Network music video for Josie and the Pussycats, where they do like seven different musical styles 
in two minutes. You mean where they do the music video for fucking Danny California years before the music video for Danny California came out? Yes, I would watch that before rewatching <laughs> the movie. But. That's, I'm glad you love it. I, I'm i okay with the fact that I have not changed your mind on this, but I hope that if any of you have 90 minutes to kill, you will give this a shot, you know, rent it. It's on, it's on streaming. Um, I don't know if it's on streaming for free anywhere, but like pay the $3, like give it a shot for me. And if nothing else, this is far, this is even cheaper just stream the soundtrack. The soundtrack is so fucking dope. And like the major songs on it are so good. And I cannot rec. I listen to the soundtrack probably a couple times a year. I love it so much. 2001's Josie and the Pussycats, a cult movie that I will adore until the end of time. Cannot recommend it highly enough. Fair enough, and I, I love that for you. You want to move on? Yeah, let's get into this really depressing <laughs> shit yeah. that you've got here. Okay, so everybody, right off the top, I'm going to state this is maybe the darkest hate I have brought to the table. Probably. If not, If not the darkest hate that we have discussed in general. Is it worse than the Armenian Genocide? You forgot that you did the Armenian Genocide, didn't you? When I was writing these notes, I did, but I would argue this is on par. Okay. In terms of evil, this is on par with the Armenian Genocide. Okay. Let's talk about it. So, yes, uh, just just getting that out of the way. If you don't want to hear some depressing shit, like, this one's going to be light on jokes, so skip the next, like, half hour or so. But with all that said, Alex... What is the worst punishment your parents ever gave you? I mean, I got hit as a kid. That's probably it. Like, it's not great. Yeah. No, like, it's not. But, like, I feel like my, like, my, my parents were not exactly, like, my parents were not disciplinarians, really. <laughs> Your parents never asked, never threatened to send you to military school. No, my parents threatened to send me to Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> my parents were like, you keep acting up. I'm going to send you to live in Columbia. <laughs> Fair enough. Which I never thought they would actually do because, like, I don't think... I, I, I love a lot of my extended family. I don't think any of them would have accepted me. <laughs> At least not long term. That's... You know what? All I'm going to say is, you dodged a bullet. <laughs> Today, uh, my hate is based on the troubled teen industry. And listeners, you might be asking, there's a troubled teen industry? And I would say yes. It is specifically categorized as a series of nationwide teenage correctional schools that parents send their kids who do not commit crimes worthy of juvenile detention, but are otherwise seen as delinquents, to in need of serious lifestyle altering, which these institutions promise to provide. 
Sounds like bitch-ass parents to me. I mean, but... does sound like bitch-ass parents to me. Bitch-ass rich parents who have more money than patience to deal with a human being whose brain isn't fully developed. Sure. And instead is going to send them to child jail. Yeah, that sounds about right. Let's get into it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just to be completely upfront, this is mostly inspired by a few specific episodes of Behind the Bastards, a podcast that... We've talked about ad nauseum on this show. Oh, yeah. Um, specifically the ones about Synanon and the Elon School. And so with that, to discuss how the troubled teen industry came to be, first, we need to go back to the late 50s and the creation of an organization called Synanon. Synanon was the first privately owned and run narcotics anonymous organization in the country. And... While it eventually turned into a militaristic cult that attempted to assassinate an NBC network chairman with a rattlesnake, for a solid 15 years, it was seen as an effective and groundbreaking method for narcotic rehabilitation and had an expansive teenager wing. Okay, I need to bracket the (laughs) rattlesnake. I thought you might. I'm not going to let you get away with that. Like, it can be 30 seconds, but what? So Synanon was created by a a man who uh, had a very cult leader mentality and went to a lot of Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and realized that his favorite thing to do was to talk to people and to to own the room, as it were. This man created Synanon, a Narcotics Anonymous uh, organization, because such a thing did not exist. But as I said, was basically a cult leader in waiting and over the span of 30 years turned this Narcotics Anonymous thing into a cult. And at one point when a certain NBC network executive uh, didn't want to let this go by the wayside and wanted to call out this organization for the evil cult shit they were doing, they cut the tail off a rattlesnake and put it in his mailbox. Straight up goddamn James Bond villain level. I was about to say, isn't that isn't that from like You Only Live Twice or The Spy Who Loved Me or something? I mean, there's certainly a killer snake somewhere in James Bond. But yeah, like and 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 the uh the Behind the Bastards podcast goes into this in much greater length. It's unclear if an actual hit was ever put out or if the leader was just like saying, Somebody needs to fucking kill this guy. And some sycophantic follower of his was like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. Grab that snake. But yeah, this is an organization that eventually disbanded because they attempted assassination via rattlesnake. Not not the most efficient method of assassination. Please continue. No, not at all. And so at the time, Synanon was seen as a major improvement to simply incarcerating youths. It was seen as something better than sending a 16-year-old to jail. Let's send him to this rehabilitation facility. Now, the most important thing to know about Synanon, besides the fact that they tried to kill a man with a rattlesnake, was that founder Chuck Diedrich was the inventor of something called The Game. Lost the game. I lost the game. (laughs) More reason to hate this. Oh, God. Um, I also hate this because the game was a group therapy practice that essentially boiled down to dozens of people sitting in a room and taking turns relentlessly verbally abusing each other one at a time. Oh, Andy, we just call that a rap battle these days. I mean, fair enough. But in a rap battle, like, you eventually get to battle back. And this 
very quickly did not become the case. Mm. Now, that's Synanon, that's the game. The game is a, a psychological therapy practice that you that, that people are allowed to do, which boils down to just completely verbally abusing each other. These are the important takeaways. Okay. In 1970, Synanon alumni Joseph Ritchie had the idea to simply focus on the teenage component of the organization and left it to found the Elon School, located in middle of goddamn nowhere, Maine. Cool. So now, if you were a parent between 1970 and 2011... <laughs> Instead of sending your kid to Synanon, which was a Narcotics Anonymous-like organization that started just taking in teenagers if you paid them, now you could pay thousands and thousands of dollars to send your kid who had stolen a car or something like that to Maine, where they would still suffer under abusive conditions, but this time almost entirely put upon by other students. The Elon School created this nightmarish social order system where everybody had a rank. And in order to rank up, in order to win privileges such as being allowed to read books or have the lights on past seven, you had to rank up. And the only way to rank up would be to catch other students committing a variety of infractions such as looking at somebody of the opposite sex, talking, being in the bathroom for too long, or displaying negative body language. I live in negative body language. I know you do. <laughs> this would have been horrible for you. It was horrible for them. Yeah. So this would turn into punishment, and punishment could look like a dozen or more students screaming verbal abuse in the face of the offender. So again, we're going back to the game, mm -hmm. only with a crucial difference. With the Elon School, you didn't get a turn to go back. It wasn't on a level playing field of everybody gets to yell at somebody else. This was you had sometimes up to two dozen kids all screaming at you or spanking your ass with a ping pong paddle to the point where you were bleeding or unable to control your bowels. This was how kids leveled up enough to be allowed to read a book. So, I feel like it's obvious, but I, I'm going to just call out the immediate logical fuckery that I am noticing with this. Sure. Namely, um, the ability to lie about what you see other people doing. Like, even if you're gonna take the system as read, the ability to lie about what other people are doing, the fact that none of this instruction seems to do anything to curb what would be the impulses as to why a kid would smoke weed or steal a car or be quote unquote juvenile delinquent-ish. Well, to, to call to the second point first, the, the curbing is you take a human being, an adolescent person, and you destroy them mentally through months of rigorous physical or verbal abuse. You create this draconian nightmare system that is their day-to-day -day lives. You 
destroy what they were as people and leave them broken to the point where not only will they not smoke weed, but they will also not be able to ever have a relationship with a family member again. One of the most famous, this isn't in my notes, one of the most famous Elon School alumni is Amy Sedaris's older sister, comedian Amy Sedaris's older sister, who in interviews was just completely unable to have any sort of like emotional connection with her family at any point for the rest of her life. I don't need anyone. You're a real tough broad, except for, you know, the uterus area. This does lead people to be broken human beings who wind up eventually working at the Elon school themselves because they can't find employment any other place or eventually doing things like commit murder, which is what eventually happened to one alumni. He, he killed a woman and that is kind of how the Elon school was revealed as this hotbed of like very fucked up behaviors in the murder trial he basically pointed the finger at the institution that created him and they brought in other alumni who were like, yeah, that place was hell. I'm looking at your notes here and I don't see any, num I don't see that this was something that was ever put on here, but are there numbers on the suicide rates at these schools? You know, I did not look into that, but you know, they gotta be fucking high. Like, I'm, well, cause here's the thing. I'm sitting here thinking like, I talk a big game. I know that I do, but you put me in a situation like this and I, I'm, I was someone who as a teenager had severe suicidal ideation and depression. You put me in a situation like this, someone's going to walk into me hanging by my belt. Well, and so that, that, that would not be allowed to happen in the school and in the research, I did not see anything of in the school accounts like that because... Again, like students are abusing each other, but there are people who are monitoring. There are staff who are making sure that these kids don't murder each other or themselves, but instead just beat their asses with ping pong paddles until they're bruised and bloody. Um, now, as for people who have left the institution, because this would be a thing where you spend six months there and then they send you back into the real world, I have no idea. But again, I bring up Amy Sedaris's sister. She did kill herself mm. uh, later in life. Okay. But um, right. yeah, this, 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 this institution, and I highlighted this one specifically because it was the one I had heard about, because it was the thing that really, like, opened my eyes. Um this institution was a nightmare facility. This was something that could only create and breed human suffering. And the Correctional Institution of America and dozens of affluent parents who had better things to do than teach their kids a better lesson just saw this as like, an effective means to an end. This is scared straight to its logical conclusion. Yeah. This was something that was allowed to exist in the way it was. And people would always spin it as like, no, this creates a good social order and teaches kids good values and shit like that. And this way you're never going to find your kid as a dime bag again. This. 
see to me, I, I, I'm listening to this and this seems to me like a fundamental misunderstanding of militarism. Like I have heard people who have been through or been close to people who have gone through the military as an example. Um, or have gone through military school, like it's there as well, where there is this notion, and they often present themselves as this notion of, we break you down so that we then build you back up. Right. If you can find it, there's a wonderful Simpsons clip of like Chief Wiggum teaching a class, and he's like, all right, in the, in the next six hours, we are going to break you down, build you back up as contributing members of society, Break you down again, then lunch, then, <laughs> then if there's time, rebuild you back up again. If you can find that, remove my uh, voice here and put that in. Okay. Um, so we have this idea that that's how it works. And the problem is there's an oversimplification of that. The idea behind that kind of militaristic thinking, which I'm going to be clear is problematic in its own right. But the idea behind it is that you break people down largely through the idea of putting them in adverse circumstances. You put them through incredibly challenging circumstances and then you build them together as a unit. The idea is that by artificially creating these challenges, a space where there is intense discipline, a space where there is collective punishment, a space where there is constant yelling and insults and all of these things, um, because you suffer it together, you are built back as a unit and you bond with the people you are with. And it's the installation of discipline, but also the installation of human connection. Yes. This is why somebody fucks up and maybe they get the collective punishment of, okay, everyone has to do push-ups. And yes, maybe that one person who fucked up Maybe they're going to be in a worse place for it. But everyone suffered together. And that is the encouragement. That is the part that's missing here. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is to break someone down to build them back up. Absolutely. And that was intentional. Um, you know, Sinanon and, and Chuck Ditterick, they did have that part. It was the abuse was done in a shared group experience. And that's how the man eventually built a cult. Yeah. Joseph Ritchie didn't care about building a cult. It was his stated goal in interviews from the very beginning of the Elon School to make money. This was all for the purpose of this guy saw a, a market, a market of parents who just didn't know what to do with their kids and went, Bitch ass. I know what to do with your kids. Send them to me. I promise they will not be your problem anymore. You just got to pay me a couple grand a month. And people did. And people still do. I highlighted the Elon School because it was infamous as one of the singularly most abusive institutions of its kind. But it is crucial for the listeners to remember my hate is on the troubled teen industry. There are hundreds of similar institutions that have formed and continue to exist in this day. I don't remember the name of it, but there was a facility in Florida that a few, like a year or two ago, got like the whistle blown on it. And it was discovered that this was a, a basic child prison where they were like feeding kids raw meat and, and having them be in inhuman conditions because these are... 
these are the fuck-ups. These are the lowest rungs of society. These are the, the delinquent kids. And really, who gives a shit? There are hundreds of these. And weirdly, the state of Utah has become a mecca for this industry, thanks to minimum state regulations, which afford greater freedom and less culpability to the for-profit institutions committing these heinous and horrible acts. Mm -hmm. So to give you and the listeners a sense of scope, it costs between 30 and 50K to send a child to one of these schools. It costs $10,500 a month to, for example, send your child to the Eagle Ranch Academy, where they will help cure your child's gaming addiction by forcing them to live in the woods for the month and cook their meals over an open flame like it's some sort of fucked up wilderness survival course. I was going to save this for the end, but I, I do have a personal connection to this topic. Um, when I was in seventh grade, my cousin, my cousin who is the oldest in age to me, he's only like two months older than me. This was the guy who like when my family went to California, we would get along the most with because we were the closest in age. Is this the one who uh, played uh, Blink-182 albums for you? Yes. Oh. This is the guy who introduced me to Blink-182 and kind of tellingly... There was a day where my uncle, his father, discovered the Blink-182 CD, read the album cover, and had a massive bitch fit that the lyrics to Take Off Your Pants and Jacket included Fuck Dan and Shit. Uh, my cousin had a very troubled relationship with his parents and lived in San Jose and was... Uh, a skate rat and a, a kid who got caught with drugs more than once in high school. Um, and in seventh grade for me, which was you know only a eighth grade for him, my, uh, my aunt and uncle sent him to one of these facilities in Utah. I can remember him talking about how like, yeah, it really sucks. They make you sleep in a tent. You have to cook everything over a fire. Like they, they teach you how to like do wilderness survival. They teach you how to take care of horses and shit. And it's all like for the purpose of making you a better person. And I don't know if any of the abusive stuff that I'm going to talk about in a moment happened to my cousin or not. At this point, I don't want to ask him because I don't want to risk pulling open that wound. Sure. I can tell you that this was not an effective treatment method for my cousin. No, why would it be? Yeah, why would it be? Um, and and this is kind of like the personal tinge that, that made me want to talk about this more than just bringing it to people's attention. There are hundreds of these schools. This is an industry that takes in people's money in, in great fucking quantities. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars. And then puts kids through inhumane conditions. Maybe not as bad as the Elon school, but very bad shit. This is an industry that is rife with child molestation, physical abuse, all sorts of problems, because frankly, who the fuck else is going to lean into this as a career? Then the truly depraved, sadistic, cruel, evil members of society. This is an industry that is starting to face real journalistic exposure and whiplash for its crimes. Mm -hmm. Paris Hilton, which if you're like me, you sit here and go, Paris Hilton, really? Paris Hilton has turned like 
her life's work into championing the cause for exposing these schools, starting with one called Provo Canyon, where she was verbally, physically, mentally, and sexually abused for over a year that she spent there when she was 16 years old. Other schools' crimes are coming out, and it's just like, it's devastating but unsurprising that when you build a for-profit institution to put kids through the most devastating, strict, harsh system of rules that you can get away with, you're going to get people who are cruel and okay with putting kids to, through incredibly abusive conditions. And because it's for profit, because it makes money, because you can then buy off your state senator, it all just gets allowed to keep going. And we'll throw the Elon school under the bus because, oh, oh, oh my God, they were letting the kids hit each other. That's not good. And, oh, we'll, we'll throw Provo Canyon under the bus because, oh, oh my God, they were, they were locking kids outside and tying them to the side of a building with a rope and leaving them out in the elements for three days in a row. And throw these under the bus for as long as it's convenient to keep all of the rest going because the focus is on the one we threw under the bus. Yeah. I so I did not know much about this topic before you brought it up. I'm not surprised at its existence. I have definitely heard extensive things about, say, the abuses that existed in military schools. Uh, and military schools came under a lot of fire for a while. And my understanding is most military schools have changed by and large because they just frankly can't get away with the same shit now that they could in say the 50s sure the in the same decades where it was okay for your public school teacher teacher to give you a paddling so the thing that i you know what i blame the parents yeah at the end of the day because here's the thing a grifter is gonna grift and frankly i mean what was his name? John Ritchie? Uh, Joseph Ritchie. Joseph Ritchie. Joseph Ritchie was going to find a grift. And he happened to find a grift where he could sit here and go, all right, rich parents are very worried about their kids not meeting X standard. I can exploit that using these means and methods that I have learned via these abuse tactics. And the fact of the matter is, very privileged people, a lot, of, a lot of times the things that drive someone to be rich, or if they are born rich, they are left without certain capacities that people who grow up poor frequently don't have the privilege to have. Sure like the idea that you can separate your existence from your children a certain way. I have I have not defended certain parenting tactics that I grew up with, and I have flat out said that they had caused problems. And at the end of the day, my parents were 
always going to exist with an idea that I was their responsibility. Granted, they didn't catch me doing a lot of shit. I never did, like, anything seriously bad to any reasonable person. But I had a I had a rough streak. You knew me back then. You knew I had a rough streak. Oh, yeah. But even then, like, my parents' attitude was never going to be, I will ship my responsibility out to someone I can pay. And that is a curse that comes with this idea of richness. Because you can pay someone to cook your meals. You can pay someone to fix your car. You can pay someone to clean your house. You can pay someone to raise your kids if you maintain a full-time nanny or a full-time live-in caregiver at yeah. all times. So money becomes a shirking of responsibility. And the very existence of these schools is predicated on the idea because this this is not going to sit here and be like we're dedicated enough to this mission that we're going to take at-risk kids from poor neighborhoods because that's the thing those are the people who might like if you had a legitimate system and this is not a legitimate system those are the people who are in real dire straits here yeah but fucking rich kids who their parents don't know how to deal with because their parents don't know how to take responsibility for their fucking children or to put in the time and effort and empathy and work that it takes to deal with a kid like that. Just paying someone to go, oh, what they need is discipline. But they don't bother to define what discipline is. If the only version of discipline you understand involves physical pain, you are a bad parent. And I will say that up front. If that's the only version of discipline that you can think of, you have not thought hard enough about how to be a parent. Because discipline looks a lot of ways. And frankly, connecting with your children looks a lot of ways. Yeah. And... I put this on the parents because at a certain level, if someone can sell you on a miracle cure for dealing with children that you had to have but could not take responsibility for, it is your fault. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I blame the parents. I blame the staff who force a 16-year-old girl to take a shower in front of the entire staff. I blame the people who collect a paycheck off of these institutions that allow for human suffering of adolescents. I, I have a lot of blame to go around and not a lot of answers other than I really hope this industry is effectively exposed and pick a, picked apart and seen as the crime and the factory of human destruction that it is and never allowed to blossom or flourish again. You know, I, this wasn't one that was going to have an easy answer. So I, in lieu of an easy answer, will just say it's something that I wanted to expose to our listeners and raise their own awareness. Um, and this was, this is just the episode where this happened to come overflowing out of me. No, I appreciate that. Uh, and if nothing else, if you know rich parents, watch them. Watch them. And if they say they're sending their kid to some school in Utah, like, 
show them this fucking episode or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, uh, Want to get into the question? Yep. All right. You did format, so I'll read this. This one comes from relationships.txt. I feel very insecure about the insane disparity in income between me, 28-year-old male, and my girlfriend, 28-year-old female. My girlfriend and I met at a prestigious university. I was studying philosophy at the time while she was studying computer science. We got along really well. I completed my master's and doctorate after college while she went to work for a startup. I devoted myself to studies after graduation and made no money since I believe it is wrong to profit from it. My upper middle class family and my girlfriend backed me up. Things have changed dramatically recently. Because of something, they don't say what, uh, my family is not as wealthy as it once was. On the other hand, she excelled at her job and when her stock and her stock bonuses are now worth millions of dollars. With stocks and options, she earns about a million dollars per year. In comparison, I make next to nothing and my family can no longer support me as a result. I became almost a completely financially reliant on her. During those years in academia, I tried to be as physically attractive as possible while support supporting her as a partner. I also helped her parents with daily stuff. I'm not making any money right now. Even if I go to work, I won't be able to make nearly as much money because despite graduating from a prestigious institution, I studied philosophy and have no prior experience. Bruh, I get it. Uh, I believe she loves me, but I also feel insecure and vulnerable in front of her. It is a mixed sensation. For one thing, I don't think I'm as attractive as I was in college because I'm financially insecure and not well adjusted to society. For another, I was depressed about my future without her because I would lose everything I cared about and forced to live a completely different life. What should I do at this point? And there's an edit. I am working. I wrote many essays and a few books in my field. However, my labor is not getting paid because I want them to be as accessible as possible. She dislikes the idea of me working for the sake of money because one, I am happier when I am an independent scholar, and two, I use my time to help her, our home, and our parents. Three, in a monetary sense, my income makes no difference to our lives. So I have a name for this. Oh, you do? Yes. Okay. I'm thinking about, oh God, I want to make sure I get both of these names right. I'm thinking about Abe from Marvelous oh. Mrs. Hazel. <laughs> sure, sure. So um, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which we did an episode on like a couple of years ago at this point. Like I think they've had two seasons since then. And as of time of release, season four has been out for like a month. Straight up. So um, we've got Abe Weissman as our person writing in, uh, an academic who doesn't make much money. Uh, and that would make his girlfriend, uh, Rose Weissman, who is Abe's wife, who is, this is a, not a perfect comparison because um, Rose is technically a housewife. Homestever, her family, it is revealed, helps them pay for a lot of shit. We, we can connect the, the metaphorical dots with Rose has money, girlfriend has money. Mm -hmm. I, I am... I am great with this uh, this name for our, our question and answer. All right, so we've got Abe and Rose. Uh, we don't need your money, Mush. You just fired your maid of 20 years, and you cried when you did it. I saw you cry. I don't need your money because I just completed my Abe and Rose end-of-days calculations. Now that they're done, we can find a place, get Zelda back part-time, and we'll be fine. I'm I read, so Andy, you want to start this? Yeah, and it is... 
real damn hard to have sympathy for Abe, in my own opinion here. <laughs> um, by Abe's own admission, um, there are a lot of voluntary factors that have made it so that Abe has never really had to try. Um, you know, for one thing, going in and getting a doctorate in philosophy. We are a couple of fucking fine arts degree having mm -hmm. motherfuckers. And I think we both know that is a horrible idea. <laughs> fine arts, not philosophy specifically. But philosophy is not a degree that you really go out and find a career in. Unless you are the next Noam Chomsky or something like that. So, strike number one is you willingly spent the majority of your academic career, a, a three separate degrees, going down this path, and you chose philosophy. Um, number two makes a point of talking about how uh, Abe believes that working for profit using using their doctorate in philosophy in a for-profit endeavor is an unethical thing to do. Which, okay, but you can't do that and then wonder and lament that you don't have any money. The biggest thing, I think, is nowhere in here do I get any sense of Rose's opinion beyond support for Abe? Saying that working for the sake of money is not something that she likes. There's no inclusion here on if Rose is comfortable with their financial disparity and is fine being the person to provide for Abe. It sounds like Abe does what he can for both his family and Rose's family. It sounds like Abe contributes, just not in the stereotypical male breadwinning way. And it's causing him issue mm -hmm. more than anyone else in his life. I mean, what do you do? You have an honest conversation with Rose you open up to your you open up your feelings of insecurity and, and angst and I suspect you listen to Rose's support and then you get over this. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I I, I want to read this because it's just funny to me. Um, whoever is the person that actually runs relationships.txt commented underneath this post two tweets. Dude secured the ideal academic life and somehow finds a flaw in it. And then wrote, this exact arrangement is the dream for so many of us overeducated dipshits. Yeah, yeah. You and I have both told each other that we we would love to be house husbands. Yes, absolutely. Like, <laughs> I had a graduate school professor. And keep in mind, I went to school for creative writing. I had a graduate school professor straight up say to me that the best advice she can give to anyone who wants to have a career as a writer is to marry rich because if you marry rich then you actually have the ability to focus on your writing and not have to deal with all the other bullshit that comes with having a living yeah and again and here's the thing it would be different if 
it, you're, you're right, Andy. We don't really get Rose anything about Rose other than she is supportive. It would be different if Rose, like, made fun of you for it or ever made comments about it or called you some kind of deadbeat or yeah. expressed any kind of resentment over the fact. Like, at that point, we're talking about a different relationship dynamic. But the fact is, Rose is sitting here going, like, from what I understand from your stuff here, Rose is sitting here saying, no, I am. I make our living and you are happy. I love you. I want to support you. You help out in other ways that are not financial that ostensibly I assume are more valuable to her. And you are, I presume, doing good things, albeit not for profit because you have this belief in everything being accessible. Like, bruh. Yeah, I mean, this is how you become the next Noam Chomsky is you are put in a position to devote yourself to the craft you have devoted yourself to and you have the financial means to live and flourish under that existence. I mean, honestly, the thing, the, the, the real thing that Abe should do besides have a conversation and share the vulnerability with Rose is create a daily schedule, spend four or five hours doing whatever somebody with a doctorate in philosophy does well, if you're writing books, cool. Yeah. That's great. I, I will say this, like, if you want to be an academic, like, here's the thing. If you're sitting here saying that you want to work, maybe, maybe you want to do something, like, more actively in that vein, and it's not about the money, then I'd be sitting here telling you, well, bruh, you say you don't have an experience, start adjuncting. All you need to adjunct is, like... If you'll have to do some interviews, but you have a degree, you're qualified to adjunct. After adjuncting for a while, maybe at that point you can look into maybe getting a lecturer position or moving up that professorial like ladder. And at the end of the day, if you never get fucking tenure, who the hell cares? You don't need it. You're making money. Like you, you've got money from from your partnership. Like that's fine. If you want to devote yourself to writing books, terrific. That's that's fucking fantastic. You can do that. But don't, first of all, just don't discount the other contributions you make outside of money. The fact is, mm. if our parents need help and you are helping with that, that fucking matters. And here's the thing. If this were, if this were gender reversed, no one would bat an eyelash at this. People would be sitting here going like, oh, it is so wonderful that you, girlfriend or wife, get to write your books and help take care of your husband's parents. Like, that that arrangement exists all over and we don't bat an eyelash at it. Yeah. And, and, and you're bringing up this attractiveness thing. That's a big red flag for me. Because that's what tells me that this is all your shit. Yeah. You are not listening to the people around you. You are not... You, you are... You're not using your philosophy degree the way that you need to. Like, some, some simple Socratic reasoning would tell you that you have this fucking perspective completely wrong. Andy's right. You need to get 
over this, dude. Like, if you want to change something because you want to have a more traditional job, then do that. If you want to pursue your dreams with the support of the people who love you, fucking do that. You were okay when it was your parents' money plus your girlfriend. But now that it's just your girlfriend, now that it's just your partner, it's a problem? Fuck you, dude. Yeah. Like, ease off. You have hit a jackpot here financially, emotionally, relationally, romantically, familially. You are privileged beyond all measure. So write your fucking philosophy books. Read some people who will actually, like, show you a little bit of understand. You know what? Read more women philosophers, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Because I guarantee you, this is some Hegelian bullshit that you are giving me right now. Read a philosopher who actually has a contemporary reasonable view outside of monetary theory. You're not an economist. Go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself, Abe. Go fuck yourself. And if you still find that you need value in your life, go volunteer at a soup kitchen. I mean, straight up. Like, if it's... You're... Your books are available to everyone. I, I, I don't normally like to insult our question askers, but seriously, you you don't want to profit off of your work and you are maligning your situation. Honey, it's okay for your partner to have privilege for you to share in it and for you to contribute in other ways. No. Yeah. Get over yourself, Abe. It's going to be okay. Stop being a little bitch. <laughs> if you want to get over yourself and stop being a little bitch, you can send your questions in to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com. And uh, by, by get over yourself and be a little bitch, I, of course, mean if you want our perfectly unqualified relationship advice, be it with a person in your family, be it about financials, be it about education, be it about just any old thing. Or if you if you know somebody who is going through something and, and you want to ask us on their behalf, you can send those questions in to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com. We promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even tune in radio. Hey mom. Uh, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those. You can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. DM us to ask your questions there. Check out what we're tweeting about. I'll probably post up something about the Josie and the Pussycat soundtrack next time I listen to it. For sure. So, like, yeah, check us out. That's right, yeah. Check us out there. Also, check out my other podcast, Cult Fiction. Today we talked at length about one of Alex's favorite cult films. <laughs> and I don't know if Josie and the Pussycats is something we will ever watch, but it certainly should be. Um, <laughs> I have that podcast with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. Once again, that's Cult Fiction, and you can find that everywhere you can find Love, Hate, Relationship. You can also follow me, Andy Bowell, on Twitter at JovoCop2113. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, TikTok, uh, LieChess, and Chess.com at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. And Andy, you forgot to plug your minis. 
You know, I did. I keep going back and forth on how much I want to blast this. But if you want to see all of the minis that I paint and take much joy and love in, you can find that on Twitter, at Andy's Minis. Yeah. <sighs> Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please tell your enemies. Yeah.